before I start tonight, I've I've struggled I've struggled to kind of frame how um, how this session should go, um, and and maybe that's just because it belongs to God, and I don't really have a lot of control over that, right? Um, but <clears throat> I just wanna I just wanna take a minute here just to be I guess quiet and just kind of wait on God and just sort of situate our hearts because um, I think He has I think He has something in our worship time tonight. I think he has something in our session tonight that he wants to call us to corporately, maybe in a new and, and unique way. So at the risk of being just a little bit awkward, if you guys would just spend just, just a minute just being just quiet with me here tonight, that'd be awesome. So... Lord, we just welcome your presence here, um, and I just want to ask that that the work that you have to do here tonight would be done without impediment, Lord. And we ask that in the name of Jesus, Amen. So uh, <clears throat> when I when I first started stepping into a more formal ministry role with this church, um, I sat down with Justin, and I told him that. <clears throat> I needed to reshape the tools that I had. And, and basically, uh, what I felt at that time in my life was I had this sort of burden to communicate what I was inspired in. And a lot of time it had something to do with scripture, had something to do with what God was impressing on my heart, right? But I would get into these, these mindsets where... <clears throat> I had a burden, and I had to share something, and it had to go, you know. Um, but I started to recognize this pattern in my life where um, everything that I seemed inspired to share, almost everything, was a reaction to failure that I perceived in ministry, in the church that surrounded me. Um, not necessarily one particular church, but the church at large, right? And I came to a point where I just said, you know, I, I need, Justin, I need to be discipled in reshaping these tools. I don't want what I share with the body of Christ. I don't want what I see in scripture. I don't want the burden that I have to always be this corrective criticism of failure, right? And so uh, Justin was really cool about praying with me in that, and, and he's walked beside me for, for quite a bit in, in kind of working to reshape those tools. And all that being said, Tonight, I'm going to walk a little bit of a line of, of, of that place again, right, where, where there is a danger that, you know, um, I could have a critical spirit or I could have a critical heart. And I just wanted to confess that to you guys beforehand here because I do realize that, that as I share about things like failure and how it, how it is perceived by the church, it could get just a little bit, uh, I guess, difficult, right? So, so that being said, um, <clears throat> walk with me in this, uh, and feel free to chat with me afterward and say, James, I think you were just too critical, man, <laughs> and I'll receive it. <laughs> um, but about, oh, it must have been about a month ago now, um, I went to a friend's house for dinner, and my friend runs a very successful ministry, 
um, outside of the United States. And they were, it was a, a catch up thing. Um, their kids were there, a big group of folks was there. And we started to chat and say, Hey, what are you doing with, with your life now? I said, well, I, I recently started in a pastoral role at a church and, and they said, Oh, you're a pastor. Oh my goodness. You didn't even tell us. You are so modest to not even tell us that you're a, a pastor now. And they made this, this big deal about how, how that's such a sign of, of success in ministry that someone would become a pastor, right? And I tried to, I tried to smile and, you know, kind of continue the conversation, but inside I was just cringing. I was cringing really bad actually, because for me, formal ministry roles of any kind, I I just don't see them as being a mark of accomplishment, right? I think maybe at best, people who are struggling through their their ministry roles, right? I, I think maybe it could be better stated that, that they've figured out how to accept the grace of God in the midst of their own of their own failures at best, right? Because when you're in ministry and you do fail, it's a public thing usually. It's not just something you can keep under under wraps like the rest of the church would often like to do. And and so as I kind of unpackaged my frustration that night, um, I kind of I kind of ruminated on some stuff that that's really been digging deep into my soul recently. And I I, I think what that really comes down to is that as as the church, the universal church, let's say, we really handle failure really badly. And I think we frame success very poorly too. Um, if the Christian life is about climbing ladders of accomplishment, then as we look around the church at large today, things are just about right, right? We see a lot of public scandals. We see a lot of folks who get wounded really bad. Um, maybe they sinned, maybe they witnessed someone else sin or something like that. But, but this sort of issue with failure kind of draws momentum, right? And what people begin to do is they begin to hide what's really going on in their life because they've observed tendencies in the church at large. And one of those tendencies often is we shoot our wounded. We have wounded people in our midst, and when they're authentic with us, we don't want to have anything to do with them. It's too difficult. It's too messy. Maybe they're too embarrassed. Maybe we're too embarrassed, right? But we don't deal with it well. And it's sad because we have a lot of examples in Scripture of this very thing, right? Where Christian folks, let's say Christian folks in leadership or people in the Old Testament that God had elevated to a position of leadership failing and handling their failure very poorly. There's almost a predictable pattern we can sort of establish as we look at different biblical examples of folks who struggle with failure, right? And it's true, it's true that there's consequences when we sin, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to, I won't be trying to make the point tonight that, that because of God's grace, there's, there's nothing we have to deal with when it comes to the product or the consequence of our sin. But I hope by the time that we conclude tonight, 
it will have been communicated that that the healing and redemption and repatriation that Jesus offers us far outweighs the consequences of any sin that that we might have. Another way to say it, I, I think, is, is that the church needs to be okay with realness, like Kanye West talks about, right? We can't be apologizing for our realness, right? We are wounded folks. A lot of us have experienced great failure in life, and it, it shouldn't be the kind of thing that has to be hidden and swept under the rug, right? Um, I think that, that in the midst of failure, something we need to do is, of course, ask for forgiveness when we deal with sin, pursue being known in our victories and our failures. And like we heard last night, um, the freedom we celebrate as we confront our failures openly is one of the greatest testimonies to the people who are in our midst, maybe the folks who aren't saved in our midst. As Justin said last night, um, God plants people in a, in a city, right? And those people are the church, and he transforms them in the midst of witnesses. And as we extrapolate that uh, process, I think what we find is that's evangelism, right? That's how God does this thing, right? He says, these are real folks dealing with real stuff, and I'm going to transform them slowly in front of your eyes, and you're going to see what my spirit does. There's a number of examples in Scripture we could look at to kind of see how, how people typically deal with failure and sin and contrast them with how God in each circumstance deals with failure and sin. And what we find is there's a big difference, right? Um, if you guys turn to Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 6, we're going to have a little Sunday school lesson here. Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right. So here we see one of the first examples of deception, sin, and failure. Right? Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they were told specifically not to eat from, right? And Adam's response, more or less, kind of becomes an archetype for 
human response to failure and sin, right? What does he do? Well, um, first of all, he experiences shame, right? He's naked. He knows it. Then he blames, right? And he hides. And this is a pretty typical pattern when we have issues in our lives. We often, first of all, experience shame when there's failure in our life, sin. We often try to blame it on something or someone else. And then we try to hide it. And sometimes we try to hide it multiple times when it doesn't work the first time. But God's response here is pretty amazing. And I don't want to overshadow it. We, we don't have time to go through the whole, the whole interaction with Adam and Eve. And there are consequences for Adam and Eve's actions here, right? They don't, get a, they don't get out for free right off the bat, right? But one of God's most interesting responses here is that he literally and almost immediately covers their shame. Right? He literally and almost immediately covers their shame. Look at verse 21 in chapter 3. It says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Right? Adam and Eve used fig leaves to make a cover for their shame. And those fig leaves weren't enough. Right? Adam and Eve had probably never killed an animal. Right? Never in their life, much less butchered, skinned, tanned and tailored a hide. And so God did it for him. And he did it in part to help them cover their shame, right? But he did much more than that, right? Because immediately, right, he goes to the serpent and he says in verse 14, he says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And verse 15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? God says there's going to be an answer for what happened here today. And the answer is going to be victory. Right? The end of the story is not Adam and Eve's shame. The end of the story is not Adam blaming Eve. The end of the story is not them failing and covering their own their own nakedness, right? The end of the story is God bringing about a solution. So once again, we have this, this pattern here. And the pattern goes something like, we fail, we experience shame. Maybe we fail again at covering our sin. And then God provides the true eternal covering that we cannot provide ourselves. I think we see another... A, example of this when we look at David with Bathsheba, right? Um, if we turn to 2 Samuel 11, chapter, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, we've read the, we read the first uh, five verses of 2 Samuel 11, chapter 1. So we find here, <clears throat> It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, 
Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So immediately, what does David try and do, if you're familiar with this story? When he finds out that he committed adultery, immediately he tries to cover his shame, right? That's the first thing he tries to do. David sends for Bathsheba's husband, brings him in from the front lines of the battle. The really interesting thing about this story as it it starts off is that for some reason, even though all the kings were at battle, what was David doing? He's chilling on his rooftop at home. Why Why was he doing that? David sends for Uriah and tries to get him to come back home, spend the night with his wife, but Uriah's men are on the front lines, and he won't do this thing while his men suffer, right? So what does David do? He, he inches it up a notch. He said, all right, if I can't cover my sin the easy way, I'm going to go the hard way. And he murders the guy, right? He murders Uriah by the sword of the Ammonites, it says several verses later. So David covers his shame, right? He covers his sin, right? But he doesn't, right? Because then a prophet, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, hey man, this is what you did, right? He calls David out cold. It's a very similar pattern that David experiences as Adam did, right? Uh, David sins, he fails, right? He tries to cover it, tries to cover it again, And when he fails, he experiences the consequences, right? But the amazing thing about both of these stories so far is that the consequences that that, um, David and Adam experience are outweighed by the promise of redemption that God offers. David does go through grief in this experience on a number of levels, right? One of the things that occurs is the woman um, that he slept with, Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant, and their child ends up um, dying very shortly after birth. Um, But later on, David and Bathsheba, when they're married, they have another child, and the child is, is Solomon, right? And Solomon was king of Israel, during the only time that Israel was an acceptable empire, right? More so, he's in the lineage of Jesus, right? So even though David did this thing, right, God rose up and he brought Solomon out of the union with Bathsheba and he brought a Jesus out of it too, in some way, out of that, out of that lineage. And that, that's a, a unique thing to consider because Oftentimes in the church, when we deal with failure, we deal with it in a very monochromatic sense. This person failed, right? They've sinned. Now they have to leave, right? Maybe that's how the church has dealt with it. Maybe you've seen a church deal with failure and sin in that way. But what we read about here, if you look at 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25, it says, Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and he lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. 
And Jedediah means beloved of the Lord, right? This is an interesting story to me because it shows that even though we can, we can fail, we can sin, we can, we can mess stuff up, out of, out of the ashes, God brings something, and he brings something that he loves, right? He brings something that he loves. Peter's denial of Christ is probably the third and probably the most poignant e- example of how failure can be dealt with one way by a man, and another way by God. Of course, if you know about a Peter's life, you'll know that even though he walked with Jesus for three and a half years in person, on the night that Jesus was, uh, was arrested, right, what did Peter do? He denied him three times, right, three times. Peter walked with Jesus for three and a half years or so, and he still denied him three times. That, that weighs on me, thinking about that weighs me. I've been a Christian, you know, for, for some years now. And, you know, I wonder what it was like to walk in person with Jesus, breathing the same air that he breathed, watching his miracles on a regular uh, basis, right? And then, and then finding myself in a position like Peter and not knowing what to do. <clears throat> if you open your Bible to uh, John chapter 18, starting with verse 18. We're, we're going to read a little bit of the story of Peter here. Um, and we're going to see specifically what Jesus does to comfort him and to make right what was wrong. Starting with verse 18, chapter 18. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals... And pay attention uh, to that phrase, fire of coals. Stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, right? He warmed himself by that same fire of coals. Therefore, they said to him, you are are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him, him being Jesus? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. Or there's the summary in Luke's account, and you don't have to turn there right now, but Luke twenty two sixty one and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. And in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, verse 74, 
Then he began to curse and swear. This is talking about Peter here. Saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And what was God's response to Peter here? And this is pretty, pretty incredible. We, we see three chapters later um, that God's response was extremely succinct and extremely beautiful, right? Um, in John 21, verse 9, I'm just going to read the first verse now, and it says, Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Okay, so here the disciples are fishing or rowing, and they come to land, and they see a fire of coals and fish laid on it with bread. The word that's used for fire of coals here in the Greek is roughly pronounced anthrakia, right? The only other place in the Bible this word is used for fire of coals. Do you know where it is? It's in John eighteen eighteen, right? Where we see Peter standing by a fire of coals, right? You have a fire of coals one night, marking the night where Peter denied Christ three times. The only other place in scripture where that word is used is here. John chapter 21, verse 9. And the reason it's significant, you'll see. Going on to 21, verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which, which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise, the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is amazing, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, right? So by a fire of coals, Peter denies Christ at three times. And by a fire of coals, Christ gives Peter the opportunity to make things right three times. And he doesn't just give him the opportunity to make things right. I wonder where it says here in 17, it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. I wonder if he was grieved because he was thinking about what happened some days previous, right? He was grieved because he remembered three times what he had done, three times what he had said. And here's Jesus giving him the opportunity to make this right, right? He doesn't just make things right with Peter. He says, hey, Peter, the most innocent among us, the lambs, he says, will you feed him? He says, the helpless, the sheep, will you tend them? And 
again, will you feed them, right? So he's not just saying, hey, Pete, don't worry about it, man. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, man, the opportunity still exists for you to do awesome stuff, you know? It still exists for you to serve me, even though you left me out for cold, right? When, I'm just wondering, and this is where I run the risk of being too critical here, I think, but I wonder where in the church, where when we see people failing among us, maybe they're people who are in leadership, maybe they're people in ministry, where have we seen this kind of grace applied brother to brother, right? When someone in our midst fails, do we give them the chance three times, right? Do we do what what Jesus did here and say, hey man, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, right? The innocents among us. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do because once again, there's something in our bones. There's something in our DNA which doesn't handle failure well, right? It wants to hide it. It's interesting that just a few weeks later, and some of you guys have heard me talk about this in the past, but just a few weeks later, Peter preaches one of the most important sermons in the whole Bible on the day of Pentecost. You know, I just wonder what it would be like if my pastor denied Christ three times, hacked a dude's ear off, and a matter of weeks later is preaching one of the most important sermons in the New Testament, right? There, there's, something, there's something to that. And it's a little bit oversimplified as I've just listed it off there, but there's something to that that we would probably be blessed to learn from, right? There has to be room for failure consequence, but also repatriation in our midst. There has to be, right? There has to be because there was room for Jesus and Peter to repair their relationship like this. I don't know if I'd feel great about Peter being my pastor, guys. It, It would be hard. It would be hard knowing what I knew about Peter's recent history, right? So as we tie this, this together here, as we tie these, these references together here, there's a big illustration of the difference between how God handles our, f- our failure and how we do. We put the failure away, we hide it, we deny it, but God redeems us, right? And he offers us a restoration, and he does so apparently freely, right? <clears throat> I remember... When I was 17, uh, I lied to my dad. Pretty big lie, too. Pretty bold-faced lie. And uh, it bothered me for a few weeks. And eventually, I, I, put it, I put it out of my head. Put it out of my head. And two years later, I was on a mission trip with my dad. We were in South Africa working at a church there. And uh, God brought it back to my heart. And I started to experience this grief and this lack of freedom deep inside, right? I had been inauthentic. I had been a liar, right? I had hidden my shame 
So I went to my dad in the middle of this church where he was preaching, and I said, Dad, I, uh, I lied to you two years ago, and I went through the whole experience, and he just gave me a hug and said, James, thanks so much for telling me. I forgive you, man. I am still that 17-year-old kid, right, the one that lied to his dad. I, I can or could do that again. It could happen, right? But the difference is that when I confessed the lie, I experienced the freedom that Christ gives us, right? And that's the thing, right? We can, we can hide our shame. We can hide our failure. We can be inauthentic in the process, right? In John chapter 17, Jesus intercedes for the whole future of the church. And, and you know what he wants out of us? He says, essentially, allow them to be one as we are one, right? Allow them to be one with us as we are one. Jesus intercedes praying to the Father that the church can be one with Christ. But when we allow shame, when we allow the response that we often have to failure, to allow us to hide, right? To allow us to to hide that part of our life. What it does is it isolates us from community, it removes us from the potential for the oneness that Christ requested, his penultimate prayer, right? The second to last thing we know that he prayed about. So again, there's this pattern here. There's this pattern of sin and failure, which leads to us, and we see it all through Scripture, trying to cover our steps, trying to cover what really occurred, failing in the process. And sometimes that failure is prolonged, right? Like sometimes you might be able to go for two years without confessing that you lied to your dad, right? Sometimes you might last half a lifetime with a lie that you know needs to surface. But in the meantime, the relationships that that lie impacts begins to suffer. Why? Because you distance yourself. There's a part of you that remains unknown, right? And it's part of you that God knows, but he wants you to be free in, right? God knows us in our failure. um, And he promises us that repatriation and that renewal in the same spirit that he engaged in with Peter, right? And so I guess I would just ask a few questions here. I would say, um, are you wounded? in the midst of some kind of a struggle tonight, right now? Um, and do you fear kind of being drug out and shot by your fellow Christians? Is that, is that a fear that's in your mind? Man, if, if the people that I go to church with, if my pastor knew this thing, is that a fear that you experience? Is, is there a part of your life that you're isolating and you're, and you're, and you're allowing to be unknown in that way because You need to cover it up, right? I think that more so than any other way of approaching life, the Christian life, really, it's a challenge to authenticity. But the problem is, the church so often poisons the well by how we treat success and how we treat failure. We have a successful preacher or minister and We put them on a pedestal and nothing can go wrong. And oh, they fail. And all of a sudden, that's it, right? That's it. 
there has to be room for failure in the church. There really does. There has to be room for forgiveness in the church. And there has to be a way of signaling to the church that this, this is what Jesus did, right? This is what Jesus did. And this is what we should be doing too. And it's a delicate thing and it's a difficult thing. And, and we will fail at not failing and we will fail at doing that thing right. But, but Christ isn't going to fail us, right? And I think that the fact that so often Christians gravitate towards covering up their failure gives the church a bad rap, right? It's easy, it's easy to think that Christians are inauthentic people, right? Especially for people that aren't Christians, because people that aren't Christians are often okay with exactly where they're at, right? And they see these people trying to do things a different way and then hiding their mistakes, right? And it's something, it's something that I think we would be right to just hold before the Lord, right? This idea um, that we don't have to hide our failure. Maybe better put the idea that as scripture shows us, we cannot possibly hide our failure, right? Because at some point in time, the light of God will be shined on it, right? At some point in time, our, our, our hidden sin will be made known. And, and, you know, hopefully it's not in the same way that um, David experienced, right? Where Nathan, uh, the prophet, comes to him and calls him out and prophetically says, you did this thing, right? So I guess tonight, you know, what what I would invite us to consider is 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 the fear of failure causing us to hide from those around us? Is it causing us to hide from our loved ones? Is that thing inside that maybe needs to be uncovered sometime soon? Is it limiting us? And specifically as the church, asking ourselves the question, how have we how have we poisoned the well if we have to um, cause folks to not be okay with confession, to not be okay with being known in their real everyday struggles, right? I, I frequently meet with a large group of people in ministry, and I've noticed this trend where every story that I hear of a project that didn't really work is always framed in this way of, but I didn't, I didn't mess it up. I didn't fail. You know, this was just what God wanted or that this was just what happened. And there's all these Christian terms we can use. But at the end of the day, we're at where we're at. I've, I've worked uh, in, with past ministries who, who have claimed, claimed ventures and projects that might be called successful by some Christians that they didn't have anything to do with just so that they could look like, they were successful, if you will, right? Because we need that success, right? We need to look like we have converts. We need to look like we're doing it right. We need to look like we're cool. But I think what we really just need to do is be real with where we're at, right? In, in the same way that Jesus and Peter were able to be real that day by the fire of coals on the beach. Um, yeah. So uh, 
if, if, if the musicians would come up. Um, I'm going to pray here, uh, and we'll continue on with some worship. Lord, I just want to ask that you would, uh, you would be present in the midst of our, our reflection here tonight, God. Um, specifically, Lord, I just want to ask that, um, you would, you would shine your light on stuff that's hidden, uh, tonight, Lord. Um, that we could, we could see that there is a safe place to fail, and it is the church, Lord. Um, and that we could just experience healing as a group here tonight. Um, and as the music goes on tonight, guys, um, in the back there, there's going to be a, a few folks, including Justin and Nick, who are going to be available just for prayer and just for hanging out. If you guys need to share anything, get anything off your heart, um, ask for any kind of uh, help. Um, they'll be there. So, yeah, let's just let's just wait on God here and uh, spend some time in worship.